Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Say, this is God's word. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well done. He will be autographing Bibles after the service. Dude, you were already top three in my mind. You are maybe number one a worshiper in this church. My name is Josh, and I'm the pastor. I'm going to walk us through that very short little text. We're going to do a little different. Before I do, just some housekeeping. You guys know this. Christmas is this week. It's upon us. It comes quick uh, every year. But just a reminder, next week we've got Christmas Eve services at 2, 3.30, and 5. Woohoo! Steinberger is excited. I will be at all three of them. My family will be at the five. So make sure you figure out who you're inviting to what service. Uh, you can take one of these cards with you if you need that. We'll have a kids choir. So if you're coordinating kids, you know you got the grandparents coming and all that. But it's going to be a great time. So that'll be Saturday. Sunday, we won't have any services. We'll do them all on Christmas Eve. The following week, New Year's Day. It's a double whammy year, Christmas and New Year's. Yeah, it happens every seven years or so. Uh, I'm, what I've been told, I've been around all that long. Uh, New Year's Day, we're doing normal service times. However, it's going to be a reflective, worshipful experience led by Chandler and the worship team. So it'll be a good time and a good space we'll create to kick off the year together. So that's what we have coming up. On the Advent offering, just so you know, in your normal giving, if you give in the boxes, you can mark Advent, or if you give online, one of the drop-down options is for Advent. And as Chris said, we give to different themes each year. This theme, uh, just the thing that was pressing on me, and as I asked people, fatherlessness. So we're given to foster care and adoption across redemptions. We're given to support our foster care ministry. Uh, not every redemption is doing this, but we're doing We Reconcile, which is actually led by a guy named Marcus, who's the pastor in Tucson. Uh, he came and preached a while back. His father was murdered uh, in Africa. Very heartbreaking story uh, in and of itself, but then he moves to the States to sort of uh, redo his life, and all of his friends, he would say, like in the teenage years, college years, were fatherless young men, most of them who had tragic endings in themselves as well. So this is just a burning thing for him that how do we help these boys that become men who never have that father wound healed? So this is something he's been dreaming up for a long time, and it's actually up and running. It's an amazing ministry, and we get to give to that. And like Chris said, if that's something you need, that's why he started it, to take disconnected father and son who should be this and bring them together through counseling and care and follow-up. So I'm excited for Advent offering uh, for that reason. So that being said, it's our last uh, Before Christmas Eve Advent series uh, message. And we are doing this thing where we open up to the Old Testament and we just take one tiny little verse that says something prophetic, something future-oriented about the person of Jesus, about the Messiah of Israel, about the King of Israel, and we just camp out on it. Usually, if you walk with us as a church, you've been with us a while, we open up to a book of the Bible and we kind of walk through word by word. We're not necessarily doing that. We're in this series called We Have a King, and what we want to do is just look at prophecies about Jesus and set our hearts sort of afire as we look at him through the lens of this particular prophecy. That being said, as we wrap up sort of Advent season and head towards the home stretch of Christmas, I do want to just remind us that this prophecy thing, it's not always just future-oriented, but a lot of times there's a future aspect to what these Old Testament prophets were saying to their modern-day their modern people in Israel as they were trying to figure out how to live life under Babylon or whatever the situation. There's this future-oriented thing, uh, and they, 
here's the thing. There's a ton of them. Hundreds and hundreds of prophecies about the person of Jesus. And part of being a Christian is building up your faith. And part of the way you build up your faith is you remind yourself that God is sure and true and faithful. And in every uh, thing he says is yes and amen in the person of Jesus. So what I want to do is just quickly give us a, just a snapshot of some of the passages that we could have pulled from in this series to talk about Jesus through prophetic little images in the Old Testament. So here's the first slide. If you're a note taker, you can write these down for later. But these are all written by various prophets in the Old Testament, all Jewish people speaking to their Jewish brothers and sisters in that day and age, but also with this sort of hint, this whisper that God had a salvation plan that was far better than they could ever realize. And one of the earliest ones is out of Micah. This Messiah character is going to be born in Bethlehem, a little town of Bethlehem, no-name Bethlehem, Apache Junction. You are going to get on the map because the Messiah is coming from your place. He's going to be born of a virgin. Anthony Hernandez preached a few weeks ago that he's going to be born to a young woman, a virgin. Isaiah told us that 700 years before the event actually happened. He would be preceded by a messenger, an Elijah type. Elijah is sort of the, one of the main prophets, the, the archetype of prophets. There's going to be an Elijah type who comes before this Messiah, and he's going to prepare a message. He's going to come out of the wilderness. Isaiah says it. Malachi says it. The chosen. This is the creepy John character who's in prison currently during the chosen. He's the weird guy who's eating weird stuff, saying weird things, but he's the messenger coming before. And the... The God of the Bible prophesied that that would happen long before it happened. He would be betrayed by a friend, Psalm tells us, Psalm 41 and 55. He'd be sold for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah later on in this book tells us. He would be hated without cause, Isaiah tells us. There would be no reason to hate him, and yet contempt would spill out over on top of him throughout his entire life. He would be silent before his accusers, Isaiah 53 says, a very famous, we read that last week. As he's facing this accusation, when all of us would have responded, he did not respond. He'd be given vinegar to quench his thirst, Psalm 69 says. It comes true in the New Testament as we read in the Gospels. He would be executed by crucifixion with hands and feet both pierced. Psalm 22 would tell us. He would be executed without having a bone broken, which was not the primary way Romans would have done it. They would have broke the bones to speed up the process, except with this one person, this rabbi they called Jesus. He would be buried with the rich. Later on, Joseph in the Gospels, who's this sort of shadowy figure. He's sort of a Christian who's halfway in, halfway out. He's got money. He's on the, these important councils, religious councils, but he's not like fully devoted. Like the Francis Chans of the world and the David Platts would not be about this guy because he's like, you're not, you're not radical enough. And he was radical enough to spend his money on a grave for Jesus to be buried amongst the rich. And he would be executed by crucifixion as just a common thief, Psalm 22, Zechariah said. And then the one we're looking at today, again, this isn't exhaustive. There would be this moment where he was entering Jerusalem on a donkey, Zechariah 9.9, what we just heard him read, says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
These are just some of the prophecies of Jesus. Now, here's the question some ask, and some have spent some time asking. What are the odds that this could actually happen the way this mysterious book seems to be writing about this mysterious Messiah character? What are the chances it could actually happen the way the Old Testament sort of puzzle pieces come together to say it should happen? There's a mathematician in the 60s, math professor named Peter Stoner, and he got together with it says 12 of his classes and gathered all the students, 600 students, to do the research to figure out the probability, the chances that the Messiah could actually do what the prophecy said he would do. Not necessarily what he accomplished in salvation, but all the check marks that he checked as he arrived here on earth through a virgin birth in this place, in this particular day and age, through these people and treated this such. What are the chances? Like the way you do chances, I used to be a math teacher, so this is my one chance. Every six months or so, I'll flex um well the chances of flipping heads it's 50 percent. everybody knows that well the chances of flipping heads heads 25 percent. how do you get that you whatever the probability the first is times the probability of the second if you're going to have this happen and then this happen what are the chances of three heads in a row it's half times half times half it's one eighth chance that you'd be able to do heads 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 what are the chances of virgin, Bethlehem, lived a life like this? What are the chances that those all go together? It seems like it's, it's not as good as a flipping of heads, but just how unlikely is it? So they did this research. Basically, all they did is you're just gathering sort of a, a numerator and denominator. Like how many people are on earth at this time? And well, the chances this one guy could be this one thing that all these prophecies seem to say he is supposed to be. And they got their data and they sent it off to third-party non-Christian organizations, science and math organizations, said, hey, check our math, check our stats. Conservative guess. And they said, yep, spot on. That's what we think the probability would be. None of them dropped dead and got saved and we give our life to the Lord. They just said, mathematically, this is lining up. And here's what they came up with. If Jesus was to fulfill eight of the prophecies... If the words of Malachi and Zechariah and Isaiah, eight of those whispers were to match up, the chances of one person being able to fulfill those prophecies is one out of one with 17 zeros behind it chance. So that's a lot. All these sports betting apps, like those, nobody takes those odds. Like you got a 50% chance. Like no one takes those odds. That's just for eight of the prophecies out of hundreds of prophecies that all sort of push in this direction of this Messiah coming out of the people of Israel. Let's crank it up a little bit more. 48 prophecies, which is still just a, a, a tiny slice of the pie of what the Old Testament whispers ahead towards the person of Jesus. It would be a one out of one with 157 zeros behind it chance that the Messiah could have checked that box, that box, that box, all 48 boxes for him to be that person. The guy realizes not everybody's a math person. So visually, here's what he came up with. You take the state of Texas, the second biggest state in our union behind Alaska, go Alaska, Texas is huge, and you fill it two feet deep with coins, whatever two feet is. You go and grab one of those coins and you mark it on a helicopter, drop it, and then whatever way you can stir up the coins of Texas, 
And then I might take my man Ken here and I blindfold Ken and then I push him into the state of Texas and I say, you got one chance, one coin pull. And he stumbles around and the chances of him pulling that one marked coin in the state of Texas is the same chances that a Messiah would fulfill 48 of the, eight of the prophecies. What do you make of that? It must be otherworldly, the reason why one guy could thread the needle of all these prophecies. It must not be a man-made thing. Now, some of you, this is not necessarily how the Lord has worked in my life, have a real need to sort of scientifically, mathematically uh, have God prove himself. And that's good. God wired you that way. I would just remind you in this season, this Advent season, where we look back at the Old Testament to see what he said, he's trustworthy. Like, whatever scientific realm you swim in, you can approach God, and he will not prove himself untrustworthy. He is trustworthy. Some of you are more like me, and you have more of an experience, like existential experience, sort of just heart need for God. I'd encourage you this way. There's a, there's a headpiece of following Jesus, but also there's a huge heart piece. What's the heart piece in this prophecy as we talk about Jesus? If Jesus really was ex, sort of ex, extensively talked about in the Old Testament, and then you read the New Testament, and sort of he exhaustive, exhaust, exhaustively crosses all these prophecies, he's like the guy, that's the head thing. Okay, uh, there's a head thing. I trust God. What's the heart thing in this? Here's what I would say. As I've studied... And I've been spending time in the Old Testament in this Christmas season thinking about Jesus and his first coming through these prophetic images and writings and passages. Here's the heart. I feel like I picture all these dominoes. All these prophecies are like all these dominoes. My kids are watching uh, Domino Master now. Great show. If you need a clean show for your kid, it's like Lego Master, but with dominoes. These people create all these dominoes, these huge things. You go up this thing, and then you go down a volcano, and then you got a car shooting at it, all with dominoes. It's amazing. I feel like Jesus' prophecy is this beautiful picture of dominoes. Bethlehem, accused beaten, mocked, no bones broken, this beautiful ray. However, here's the heart piece. What makes the domino go for all of it to actually do what it's supposed to do? And here's what this whole message about is this morning. Only one thing makes the dominoes go. Because just, Audrey, go back to the slides of the, I just want to remind you what was prophesied. It's not like he'd have a great looking spouse, he'd be rich, He'd have a second home in the Bahamas. He'd have chicken wings on demand. It's he's born of a virgin, perceived by a messenger. He's betrayed, he's sold, he's hated. Next slide. He's accused, he's given vinegar. He's so thirsty at the point of his death, he's executed, he's executed, he's executed as a thief. Next slide. And his big, hot, grandiose moment where he gets to enter and show the world that who he is, it's on a donkey in front of the watching world. What's the thing necessary for the dominoes to start falling for that person to be here? And it's one thing, it's humility. If God does not humble himself, the dominoes stay up. And we've got an Old Testament book with a lot of potential, but we don't have a New Testament without the prince that we worship here this morning. What's the thing that made it fall? It's simply 
his humility. Here's my big idea as the title is Becoming the King. Humility is the key to the king and the kingdom. Period. What made this whole thing go? He who was equal with God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, Paul says about Jesus. But instead, he emptied himself. He humbled himself. And in that humbling, he starts the domino that would be the salvation plan that we benefit from here because of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. That is good news. That's why I love preaching. I love my job. But here's where we're going to talk today. We're going to talk simply about humility. So I want to stop and pray. I've talked a lot. That's a long intro. Uh, Let's catch our breath a second. God, warm our hearts this morning with the beauty of Jesus' humility. God, we want to fill our minds with truth and a foundation and a firm foundation that we can trust you in all that you say. And equally so, we want to fill our hearts with warmth and fire and passion for who you are and what you're like and what this kingdom that you've invited us into is really like. So God, as we all walk in here a week away from Christmas with a variety of things on our minds and checklists that are waiting for us as soon as we leave here, I pray that we would stop and pause and just be wrapped up in your story collectively as your church this morning. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So here's the answer to all the questions today. Humility. So when I ask a question, the answer is humility. I'm going to ask three questions today, and every answer is humility. So here's the first question. How did Jesus become king? Answer? Well done. Here's what, just a little side note in my studying. I had this thought, when did Jesus become king in this whole process? And I Googled, when did Jesus, I shouldn't like, I have a degree in Bible that, you know, from trusted people, I should know like the timeline of this. But I, I started asking pastor friends, when would you tell your people, when would you say Jesus became king? And in one sense, it's like, well, he's always been king. He's the Lord of lords, king of kings. He's God. He created all things. He is before all things. He's the alpha. He's the omega. Yeah, I get that. But he's also writing himself into the story as the son of David from a very specific lineage, a Jewish lineage, and then a Davidic lineage. So when did he become, and if you Google, when did Jesus become king, did Jehovah's Witnesses own like the top 30 Google answers, just so you know? (laughs) And they have a very specific answer. January, or October 1914, Jesus became king. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses disagree with us on who Jesus is, so we are not in the same camp. But it's interesting that they can say, right here, right now, is when Jesus became king. Right as World War I's kicking off, Woodrow Wilson's president, and oh, by the way, Jesus is sitting now on his throne, according to Jehovah's Witnesses. The question here is not when. What I'm concerned with is how did he become king? In the passage that our man just read, here's what it would say about the king. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What is the answer to how Jesus became king? You guys said it. It's humility. humility. He's humble. 
How did the domino fall? He humbled himself. That's it. Like in the Christmas season especially is where we get to sort of embrace the earthiness of Jesus. That he was born. That he was nursed by a mother. That he was maybe dropped at some point by a relative who shouldn't be holding him. Like he, he was, he's earthy. He put on the earth, the dirt, the skin that he created for our sake. How did, why did he do that? Because he is humble. And that image we have is he is humble and mounted on a donkey. One of the beauties of being a Christian is that God has come close to us and we can picture with eyes of faith what Jesus is like. When I used to be a teacher, I had a lot of Muslim students and I would just evangelize them all day long and they love talking about God. Here's the big miss, here's where we would miss all the time is they don't visualize God. God is so holy, so distant, so transcendent, so other, so out there that they don't have any context of here's what God could be like. He's just out there. He's God, Allah. We don't talk about him like you guys talk about your God. We don't serve that God. We serve a God who gives us images, and here's one of them. He was sitting on a donkey, rolling into town to be the king. It's a beautiful image. I think of people I love in my life and just how if I could capture them in one image, like what image would I give for this person? Here's the first one. Some of you know this stud. Look at that guy making cranberries on Thanksgiving. I mean, if he's making food, if he's sitting on the toilet, if he's playing Legos, that is his face. He is just happy to be alive. I call him the walking exclamation point. That is my baby. That's the image. I hope it doesn't change, but I've got older ones, so I know that doesn't stay around forever. Here's the next one. That's my dad. You can't see his face. That's us doing what we love doing, hunting. We both have a tag, but that's him scoping the land so that his son can get a shot because he just serves all the time. And I love this image because he just sort of blends in. He's never the object of anyone's attention. He's always there serving. Always. Even last night, I'm praying through my message, and boys are like, oh, something's weird in the bathroom, and all our pipes are backed up. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Call, you know, a couple companies. Well, next emergency person we can get out is Tuesday. I'm like, well, that's not going to work. So I call Dad, eating a steak dinner with a buddy. He's like, I'll head over. And we're out there snaking, doing what no man or woman should ever have to do. <laughs> ever. Why? Because that's what he does. He just serves. Well, what is Jesus like? I, we have the cross. And we, we love the cross, and rightfully so. But we also have the king of the universe riding in on a donkey, coming in the same lineage of these guys, Saul, David, and Solomon, who God told them, do not multiply your gold, do not multiply your wives, and do not multiply your horses. And they said, ah, the humbug. And they multiplied their gold, their wives, and they accumulated many horses. Jesus never owned a horse. He rode in on a borrowed donkey, his crescendo moment of becoming king. Why? Because he is humble, humble, humble. What does the word humility even mean? It comes from this Latin word meaning uh, from the ground or from the earth. It's like this grounded thing. It's like humble is from the earth which I love. Is Jesus humble? Absolutely. He created the earth and then he humbled himself. He became humble for our sake. 
But C.S. Lewis probably has the most accessible definition of humility, I think, especially for Christians. Here's how he would describe humility. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's simply thinking of yourself less. Like Jesus never once self-deprecated in an unhealthy way. He never once thought, well, maybe I'm not that big a deal. 100% he was God. 100% he ruled all things. 100% the whole universe was being upheld by the power of his word at every moment of his life. He never once let go of the reality of who he was. However, what he did do is he thought of others more significant than himself. That's humility. It's not thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking of ourselves less. And Jesus modeled that all the time. Like there's this country song I love to listen to, especially I think about my boys and future wives. He's one of the good ones. Anyone can be good once, but he's good all the time. He's one of the good ones. Anyone can be good once, but he's good all the time. And I get songs, you got to write it. That's not true of her, man. It's not true of any of us that we're good all the time. I can be humble once. I can be humble twice. I can be humble three times. You could be humble a few times. But none of us can be humble all the time. And we follow a king who was humble all the time. There was not a moment of his life where humility was pushed aside for the sake of something else. He was born to a virgin. That in and of itself is a humbling thing. But as I think about parenting and just my own journey as a parent, he was born to a first-time parent. Where'd we mess up on? All of them, but in particular, our firstborn. Like, who's coming back asking for counseling bills being paid for? Your firstborn kid is. And Mary had never held her own kid before. She wasn't comfortable with the process. Any of it. Like, watching my wife learn how to nurse was like one of the most beautiful and painful things ever. Like, gosh, that is dedication that I don't have. And Jesus humbled himself and placed himself in the care of a first-time mother. Why? Because he's humble all the time. And then he grows up and he lives a life. And it says, uh, even in his earthly ministry where he's doing all these wonderful things for people, rich people, poor people, all the people, he says, I don't have a place to lay my own head. Why? Because he's humble all the time. When he's being born, when he's doing public ministry that's blessing the socks off people, he's still humble. And then we get to this passage, his crescendo, like the moment for him as king. This is the inauguration week. This is the final week of his life. This is when, all right, Eric, well, let's stop playing around. Jesus, show your cards. Show him who you are. He rolls into town on a donkey that he had to borrow. Why? Because he's humble all the time. That's the Christmas mystery that Christians are beginning to understand and one day fully we'll see what it all means and non-Christians are hoping for but they just can't put words to it and here's the thing Jesus is humble a few words used to describe in the New Testament that all kind of go together gentle lowly humble meek what's the good news of having a king that's humble because reality we live in America and we're going to vote for people and humility is not necessarily the thing that is lighting anyone's fire right now. We want the person that's going to fix the problem or get rid of the problem that these other people have created. We don't want the humble one. Christians have signed up to follow the humble one. What's good news about God in the person of Jesus being humble? I'll say it as simply as this. It means God is accessible. 
He's accessible. Even the word meek in the New Testament is this sort of uh, training wild animals. It's, it's the same word you would take when you take a horse out of the wild, wild stallion of a horse, and you tame them so that a rider can sit on top. And that stallion, that horse, still has every bit of wildness in him, still wants to kick and go a thousand miles an hour, but they've suppressed it so for the sake of a rider being able to sit on them. That is the gospel. God all-powerful, almighty, all-majestic, an unquenchable fire, somebody we could never stand in the presence of has come down and humbled himself. And he's now accessible to you and to me. He's the humble king. And he's invited us in. It takes us to our next question is, how do we now enter this kingdom? You guys know the answer. It's humility. I want to read the passage again. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Tell us what he has, Zechariah. He's righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He says, Rejoice, sing greatly. There's this procession. Sing a big song. It's like my kids and all these youth sports now. They all have walk-up songs where they're going up to the plate and they get to choose what song. All I do is win, 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 I'm out of what? And you get this nerdy kid who strikes out like there is a discrepancy on what I just witnessed with the song and the production. And Zechariah is saying, Sing, sing, rejoice, rejoice. Why? The king is here. And what does he have? It says, having, possessing, holding salvation is what he has. What is the hope for this world? Is that there's a king who has come humble. God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, and he's come. And what did he bring in his first advent? Zechariah says he brought salvation. He has brought restoration. He has brought healing. What is salvation? It's being rescued. This world being rescued from the the power and the presence and the punishment of sin. And within that world, you and I as individuals being rescued from the power and the presence and the punishment of sin. How do we find that rescue? We have a king holding salvation. How do we get that salvation? We humble ourselves. His humility brought him close. And now our humility is what puts the salvation in our possession. Here's how Jesus would describe what he wants from us, for us to enter into his kingdom. Truly, I say to you, unless you turn, I love how Jesus always assumes we're all headed in the wrong direction. He's never like, (laughs) except this political party, you're mostly good. No, all of you turn around, you're all walking the wrong direction and become like children. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Tell us what to do, Jesus. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. How do you get into the kingdom of heaven? You humble yourself like a child and do what? You ask for salvation. You ask for rescue. You say, you're the one that can rescue and I'm the one that needs rescuing. Will you do it? And his answer is emphatically yes to those who humble themselves. James says this way, summarizes a major theme in the Bible. He gives more grace. That's why it says this. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Christian, have you received salvation? Just glory and rejoice in that fact. Non-Christian, if you're here, you're invited by someone, you're trying to figure out faith, here's what you need. It's salvation. And Jesus offers it. 
But you have to humble yourself. We're doing premarital counseling with this couple who don't come to our church, just neighbor friends, and they said, hey, I heard you do this. We, we're going to get married. We'd like some help. And the first, we, we just had our first talk with them, and we basically got to share our testimonies. My wife's testimony, my testimony. My wife's got a beautiful testimony about being a church kid who never quite knew Jesus. And then she chooses a boy. is like, you know, that's going to be my salvation, which, you know, 17-year-old boys tend to fail in a lot of ways, especially being saviors. And that's what she chose. And it ended poorly, and she's 20 years old. And some guy comes and shares the gospel with her and says, hey, we're all sinners. It was like the light bulbs went on. It was like the first time she heard that we're on a level playing field. All of us have sinned. We're all messed up. And I'm watching the guy there who's like, I'm trying to figure out what his thoughts of faith are. He's like, I've never heard it that way. I've always heard there's like these guys and these girls and then me. Jesus says, no, you're all in the same field. But there's a king walking in on a donkey, and he's got what all of you need. It's salvation. You just have to humbly ask him for it, and he will. But the answer that we need to get in the kingdom is humility. Once we're in this kingdom, though, final question, how do we move up in status in this kingdom? Here's the question. If a relationship with Jesus is simply me humbly confessing my sin and asking for salvation. Once I'm in, is there sort of like any reason to like advance in the kingdom? Or is God just this great communist where it's like just a flat ground no one gets to ever put their head up? And that's not true. His disciples, these two guys are fighting, James and John, two brothers, boneheads. You know, I can see them wrestling and like punching each other. And she's like, what's going on? He's like, we're figuring out who's going to be the greatest. He's like, well, I'll tell you, it's going to be grace if you stop fighting and act like idiots. And here's what Jesus talks about here. We got the slide here. They heard they began to become indignant. So that's all the disciples see these two fighting about who's going to be the greatest. And then Peter and the boys are like, who are these guys? Who invited James and John? Jesus said, all right, teaching moment. Called to them and said to them, those, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. Just pause just to give us context. Consider anyone in our cultural moment right now who considers themselves something. They do it wrong, Jesus would say. But let it not be so among you. I've got different rules in my kingdom. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus gives sort of two layers of how you get higher in the kingdom. And here's what he says. If you want to be great, first be a servant. Mike Watt, check. He might not be much here, but he's great in the kingdom of heaven. How do you get even higher, Mike Watt? If you want to be first in my kingdom, you must be a slave of all. We want that if we're Christians. We want to have that heart more. We want to be more humble. Even if you're not a Christian, you're like, I, I want that. But humility is this weird thing. Like, you can't really talk about it. Like Tim Keller says, it's sort of this weird thing. As soon as you talk about it, it sort of disappears. Because you're like, all right, let's talk about humility. Who's the most humble person in this room? The person who raises a hand gets kicked out of the group for not being <laughs> humble. Well, how do you, like, improve your humility? How do you grow in your humility? Well, and here, 
But I got two ways. One's a good way, and one I think is a better way. Here's the good way, I think. And I, I mean good seriously, not sarcastically. But you give yourself rules to govern yourself. Mother Teresa had rules for growing in humility. Here's her rules on how to be more humble today than she was yesterday. Speak as little as possible about yourself. Keep busy with your own affairs and not those of others. I love this one because this is like social media 101. Avoid curiosity about those things that don't concern you, which is everything online. Do not interfere in the affairs of others. Accept small irritations with good humor. Do not dwell on the faults of others. Accept censors, even if unmerited. Give in to the will of others. I hate that one, Mother Teresa. I did not ask you. Meaning like someone imposes on your life, you give in. Like, that sounds like bad boundaries. Well, Mother Teresa seems to disagree. Number nine, accept insults and injuries. Accept contempt, being forgotten and even disregarded. Oh, she's cranking it up. Be courteous and delicate, even when provoked by someone. Do not seek to be admired and loved. Do not protect yourself beyond your own dignity. Give in in discussions, even when you are right. No, I will have no more, Mother Teresa. <laughs> False. Choose always the more difficult task. Write some of those down. And as you walk into this week where you're going to see family and friends and coworkers, and God's going to invite you into moments of being humble, do your best. You can grow in humility that way. Here's the Christian, like, deep answer on how you grow in humility. Jonathan Edwards would say there's two types of change in the world. There's moral change and there's spiritual change or renovation. Moral change, you focus on the rules. Spiritual change, you focus on the ruler. So write down the rules and pray about the situations you're in. But as Christians, here's what we get to do. We get to focus on the ruler. And I want to read the passage one more time and just remind you who our ruler is. Rejoice greatly, Redemption North Mountain. Rejoice, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Our king has come. He's righteous and he has, has salvation. He's humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is our king, Christians. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for taking the step required for salvation and rescue and the reconciliation of all things to happen. We were sitting here in the mess we've created that was passed down from our parents and will pass down this sin and this brokenness, this rebellion and this disobedience and all the things that are part of living in a world that chose to be their own God rather than listen to you. And yet you and your beauty began writing a story about one who would come, born of a virgin, born in the line of Abraham, the son of David, in this faraway little place to this nobody group, and then to be mistreated basically his entire life. And God, that was the plan of salvation. And the thing that enacted it was simply you humbled yourself, put on flesh to begin 
this great rescue plan that we're now swallowed up in. So God, for the Christians in this room, it's, I just pray it's a sweet reminder of this reality that you're humble. You're always humble. Not merely to be an example, but it had to be that way if salvation was ever going to come. God, for those of us who now want to live faithfully as your followers, I pray that we would listen to your spirit specifically this season, especially over the next week to two weeks as we navigate a lot of situations where we can think much of ourselves and think of ourselves often or we can think less of ourselves and take the path of humility. So God, give us the, the ears to hear when you're speaking, the obedience and courage to follow through with what you're calling us to. And God, thank you that Jesus did this perfect so that none of us would feel the weight of having to get it perfect. We simply get to model what you've done so perfectly. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.